Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Nailers Natter. This week I am joined by Mark Enser. Listeners will know that Mark has been teaching for 15 years in a variety of schools and he's currently Head of Department for Geography and a Research Lead in lovely rural Sussex. He's a regular contributor to TES and his first book, Making Every Geography Lesson Count, is a bestseller and is out now. And his next book, Teach Like Nobody's Watching, will be out in the autumn. In the little spare time that he has, he's also a regular walker and runner. And it's also worth saying that I've got massive envy towards Mark for two things. One, for those of you on Twitter will know, the view from his window is just spectacular. And I'm also extremely envious of his writing desk, which I may well ask him about in the upcoming interview. So, in this interview, alongside the usual questions, I'll be asking Mark about his books and his latest piece for Tez on a curriculum. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Mark Enter. Okay, so hello Mark and welcome to the podcast. Hello, good to be here. Thank you. And we're just talking off the air, if you like, about the view from your window. So if you just want to describe that briefly so that everyone who's listening can be jealous. Well, if they haven't seen all the photos, I'll give it a go. Um, endless green fields and trees stretching out towards the south down. It's a, a nice spot to sit and ride. Fantastic. Very lucky. Absolutely. It sounds idyllic. And of course, you're on, uh, you know... One of my favourite writing desks that I think I've ever seen as well, so I, I definitely need to get one of those as well. Yeah, it gets a lot of use. <laughs> I bet it does. And we'll talk about that later on. So, if we can get into the first question, um, which I, I've been sticking with, this X Factor question. So, if you just tell us about okay. your sort of journey to this point in your career and a little bit about your current role. Okay. Um, well, I've been teaching for 15 years um, and teaching geography. I've been head of geography for the last of those. I taught in a whole range of schools. I started in an all-girls school, went to an all-boys school and thought there was going to be a massive difference and realised there was no difference whatsoever. Um, then taught in a mixed school, um, which brought me to where I am. So I'm currently a head of geography and I'm also the school's research lead. Brilliant. It's been an interesting role to take on the last couple of years. Yeah, I know. And, we, and we've done something similar and we've got research leads in, in our schools. Mm. So, I mean, that might be something we could talk about maybe later on in terms yeah. of uh, how that's evolved and maybe a little bit about the RISE project and, and, and what came out of that, possibly. Oh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> controversial stuff. That's yeah. why I said, so we're not, we'll not start on controversial stuff. We'll go uh, straight into the set questions. So, okay. uh, just if you could tell us about the one piece of research that's had the most effect on you. Okay, I think it would have to be uh, Karpik and Grimaldi's paper from 2012, looking at retrieval-based learning, uh, perspective for enhanced meaningful learning. Fantastic. Now, this is not one we've had so far, so I'm really, really interested about this. So what was it that made you seek that out and read that? Um, I was looking at what the evidence was on retrieval practice, and I was just uh, concerned that when we pick up all these low-stakes quizzing at the start of lesson, which is something that a lot of people are doing and you see being recommended, is that all it was leading to was the ability of people to uh, recall that one piece of information they'd been quizzed on. So I was interested in any research out there that looked at the idea of being able to take that information and to transfer it into new contexts. And that's when I stumbled on this, which suggested that you absolutely could and that the testing 
I mean, just going off a little bit on that, do you feel like there's a little bit of a misunderstanding around retrieval practice? I mean, you mentioned interestingly there that you've heard a lot of schools have applied it as kind of a lesson starter. Uh, yeah. And I know that we, we speak to people who've done that. You know, do you think that there's there's obviously merit in teachers reading this piece of research and looking a bit more into detail of actually what retrieval practice is? Absolutely. I, I think it's interesting that the title retrieval-based learning mm. isn't just on you know, the, the idea of the, you know, the testing effect and low-state quizzing. I, I come across people sometimes saying things like you know, their schools implementing Rosenshine's principles of instruction and therefore they've got to start the lesson with a quiz because that's what Rosenshine says in his first principle. And he doesn't. He says you need to start by recapping previous learning. Mm. That doesn't have to be in the form of a quiz. Now, I like quizzes and I like to start with a quick quiz. I think it's a really efficient and effective way of doing it. But if that's all we do, if we just focus on the strategy and we ignore the underpinning research, then we're probably going to miss a trick because retrieval needs to be interwoven throughout the whole lesson. We need to be constantly looking back at things we've studied before and tying it to what we're looking at now. So we develop these much more advanced schemas, these kind of webs of knowledge that show how our different lessons and ideas are connected. Mm, definitely. So I, I get a bit catchy when people just talk about quizzes and retrieval quizzes. Yeah. Um, I mean, my latest bugbear. Well, yeah, and one that uh, I'm sure a lot of people would share. Just out of interest, I mean, I was writing something um, myself around the implementation of the new Ofsted framework and, and the danger yeah. of sort of, you know, getting my effects right, the sort of Dunning-Kruger effect of we're starting to have a little bit of knowledge of some mm -hmm. cognitive science principles, for example, retrieval practice, and then we are rushing to implement this yeah. really, really quickly, and it's ending up, as you said there, manifesting itself in quizzes at the start of every lesson because that's what we should do. Yeah, and that's when we end up with these kind of terrible education myths and things. You know, I think we're quite quick to look back at some of these ridiculous things that happened in the past, like you know, testing for learning styles and having you know, some most all learning objectives and brain gym and there was, you know, a huge amount of nonsense out there. And we've been very good at kind of cutting that away and being very critical of it. But we run the risk of simply creating lots of new education myths if people don't understand the principle behind the practice. And, and you know, you can see that with low stakes quizzing, I think we'll see with knowledge organisers, with whole class feedback, there's this whole slew of what could be excellent ideas that are being destroyed because we're just jumping on the strategy and we're not fully engaging with why we're doing it. No, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, in, in the preparation for various things that we're doing in terms of research school, maybe articles that we're writing, obviously you know that we had Daniel Murs on and the research commentary behind the, the, um, the new Ofsted framework is probably the most important thing to read. And actually, I've just got that in front of me now. That quotes this particular research paper that you're talking about. And actually, you know, if, if people want to start to implement something you know rightly around a retrieval practice it's obviously worth starting at, at least if you don't go to the actual source of the research paper that you're talking about and we'll discuss in more detail in a minute it's very much worth looking at the research commentary which gives a very concise kind of explanation of what re what retrieval practice is and more importantly mark isn't yes absolutely i, I think you know, the new frameworks have a very very good job there um it, it's just whether that gets out to teachers and gets out to schools because reading it and engaging with it takes a massive amount of time mm. and most teachers don't have that time and most senior leadership teams don't have that time mm. and so all they'll do is see the 
headlines and they'll see what other schools are doing and they'll see what the shiny suited consultant suggests they should do and they'll jump on that and hope for the best. And there's probably more malign things you can do than start your lesson with a retrieval quiz. It's unlikely to do much harm, but it won't do as much good as it could do if we don't understand those kind of underlying ideas. Absolutely. So moving on in terms of your job as a research lead, um, how, how have you used, let's say, this particular piece of research, how have you used that in your job? Um, a few different ways. So one of the things I, I really like, you know, this paper, it's drawing together um, lots of different kind of research on uh, retrieval practice and, and retrieval-based learning. So it's not kind of an original piece of research itself. It's drawing together and the other things that are out there, so it's kind of a review of the literature. And there's kind of a few things I took away. That my, One of my favourite bits, and it's my favourite graph, and I hope everyone does have a favourite graph, I'll be very disappointed if they don't, but it's from a research paper um, by uh, Rodiger and Carpick back in 2006, and it's the one that, they, they did this uh, piece of research where they looked at the impact of studying something versus the impact of retrieving it. So they had their, their groups of students all studying the same information. The first group studied the same thing in four sessions. The second group studied it in three sessions. And the third session, they didn't see that information again, but they retrieved as much as they could from memory. And the final group only studied the information once. They then tried to retrieve it in the following three sessions from memory. And this is something that I shared with uh, the students in our school is that the group who studied it four times felt very confident going into the test because they'd seen the information a lot. They felt that they really knew it. Uh, whereas the group that did the most retrieval practice only saw the information once and tried to retrieve it, felt the least confident going into the test. However, the group that kept on studying the same information over and over again performed significantly worse than the group who had studied it once and done the retrieval practice. And this links to the kind of work by Gunlowski and you know, his excellent student toolkit which looks at the fact that you know, people don't know how to revise and that pupils don't know how to revise. So we've taken that element and used it a lot with our uh, students all the way through kind of year, year 7 through to year 13, looking at the importance of revising in the right way, not simply rereading your notes and restudying things, but trying to do something from memory. Um, so that, that's been quite, quite a useful uh, little piece that we've taken away. Really interesting. And again, that uh, particular research paper is referenced again by MERS in that in, in the Ofsted summary, and it's something that, that Simon Cox and I have talked about quite a lot. And it's interesting that you said it sort of two ways there, in terms of we've talked about it with the staff, but we've also <coughs> talked about it with the pupils sort of earlier in the year, particularly sort of year 11s and, and exam classes, to see how they could apply that to their own, their own sort of learning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you find it made a difference? Well, I mean, as we speak at the moment, I don't quite know when I'm going to put the podcast out. But uh, yes, we, 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 but then again, you know, that we, we feel confident. But as you've just stated, that isn't always a, a, a good sort of marker for whether that's going to be the case or not. So maybe we'll revisit this again in uh, sort of September and have a look at that. But yeah, th th there's a feeling that these kind of things are working. But obviously, you know, we need some, some more evidence to kind of back that up. If I could just ask you, in terms of... Retrieval practice. So I, I listened to uh, Mark McCourt, and Mark's actually going to come on with me in a few weeks, but listen to him with Craig Barn. Absolutely <laughs> superb podcast, and they were talking about retrieval practice. Uh, you know, and they talked about a lot of things in the, uh, whatever it was, two and three quarter hours that they were they were chatting. <clears throat> but one of the things he talked about was what kind of, you know, if I'm trying to think of the right phrase for this, what, what's reasonable time 
before you can retrieve something. And I mean, the literature possibly isn't that clear on that, but what, what, what's your kind of feeling right now? I don't know. There's some really interesting research that's been done looking at kind of um, the spacing and, and how much time you should give it. And the research seems to indicate that the longer you want to hold the information onto, the longer you want to leave that gap. Uh, before you, you kind of revisit something. However, I, I tend to find that it, it's most useful to, to start off retrieving something fairly quickly after you've had that initial input. I mean, that's a reason that our lessons tend to be set up the way they do. So, you know, we do our kind of recap of previous learning and then the teacher delivers some kind of input and then we have an application where the pupils take the information they've just been given and immediately have to retrieve that information they've just heard in order to apply it. So I, I tend to think that teachers do things for a reason. I tend to think this way of teaching something, uh, which is something that, you know, not just in the classroom, but is a way that everyone teaches anything. You know, I will show you how to do something, now you give it a go. What can you remember of the thing that I've just shown you? It is fairly universal. Mm-hmm. And so although, I, you know, I think there is some interesting work to be done on you know, the optimal amount of spacing, I think it's going to vary enormously depending on what it is that we're trying to get them to remember, how and what to remember it for, how much they all know about that subject. I'm not sure we're ever going to cover the neat number, but certainly think it's, it's well worth getting them to retrieve something very quickly after they've first been introduced to it. And then, you know, a week or two later, a month or so later, several months later, and that kind of rhythm built in. Um, but I don't think we're ever going to get a really nice formula that this is when we should come back to it, certainly in a subject like geography. Uh, it's possible that maths may be able to do it, you know, the way that their subject's structured. It, it might be something that's a little bit neater, but I'm not sure that we'll ever find it. Hello? Oh, hello. Yes. Yes, are you there? Hello. Yeah, sorry, it just went a little it just went a little bit quiet there for a minute, but I think we're back. We're back. Okay. I got the end of that, so that, that's brilliant. Um just just to kind of tie that little bit up. I mean, we talked before that teachers are now starting lessons with what they call retrieval practice and you know, on the podcast where Craig and Mark were talking about, you know, how to implement this kind of thing. I have I do have sympathy for teachers that have decided to start each lesson with what they're calling retrieval practice because mm. if you kind of you know look at what they were advocating around sort of a learning episode if I've got the, the, the language right there mm. it's difficult to remember to do it in the sheer amount of other things that you need to either content cover or assess or all the other things that you need to do in, in lessons so I do understand that we're quite fortunate because yeah. we have a hundred minute lesson so we can do quite a lot within that time yeah. Um, but when you when you're trying to get everything into fifty minutes, I can totally understand why why teachers would do yeah. that. And and there's an argument uh, around implementation. It's quite important that at least these things are being done. Oh, absolutely. And I you know I start most of my lessons with the retrieval quiz. Mm. I, I think it's a really good idea. I just don't think it's the end of it. And that, and that's why I think retrieval needs to start becoming a curriculum consideration. It's not just a lesson planning consideration. We need to start planning retrieval into the curriculum so we find time to revisit things that they've looked at before. And especially, again, you know, every subject's different, but in geography, it's a naturally synoptic subject, and we can find links between subjects quite naturally. And so when we can do that, we need to be flagging it up and really trying to draw them together. So we're saying, well, do you remember 
when we looked at this topic on tectonics, now we're going to use what you learned there several months ago to help us understand how the British landscape was formed now. And so we're, we, we're constantly going back and thinking back to use things we've learned at, uh, we've learned in the past and applying it to something new. And you know, to go back to that kind of paper by Karpik and Grimaldi, that their definition of learning is that learning means you're capable of using information available in a particular context um, and that you can meet the demands for present activity. Hello everyone, you are listening to my dad on the podcast called Nailers Natter. Follow him on Twitter at PNA1977. It's a curricular thing, it's not simply a lesson planning thing. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So in terms of, you mentioned before, in terms of what I thought the impact might have been, you know, with the stuff that we've been doing with that, what, what do you think has been the impact of this particular piece of research, maybe on your practice, but also wider in your in your role as head of geography and as a research lead? We did a little bit of um, research in our school, having a look at the impact of some of the study advice that we've been given, uh, been given to our students. Um, and they're certainly able to tell you much more about how they should revise and what's more likely to be effective. So they're much less likely to say they spend time highlighting their notes or rereading their notes. They're more likely to say they engage in self-quizzing, self-review, um, attempting to answer exam questions from memory. So they, they are revising in a more efficient and effective manner. Whether that has an effect, we don't know, um, but the literature suggests that it certainly should do. But it seems to be working. It's kind of addressing some of those concerns. We've also been um, uh, engaged in an IEE, um, Institute for Effective Education funded research project, having a look at the impact of retrieval quizzes on meaningful learning in geography and history. Uh, so we're just coming to the end of that trial now. So hopefully next year we'll be able to see whether our year eight students have really benefited from these kinds of uh, quizzes at the start of lessons. Um, so we've got kind of half the year group using retrieval quizzes at the start of lessons, the other half continuing without them. And we're going to have a little look at whether one group performed better than the other in their end of year assessment. Brilliant. So that should be quite quite interesting. Well, that, that really will be interesting. And just a couple of things are on that. So, um, as you know, the reason for this podcast was to put kind of research evidence into teachers' hands. And, and, and both Simon Cox and I are both still in the classroom and teaching. And interesting that you mentioned about highlighters. So we'd gone quite big on saying, you know, presenting the, the, the toolbox. So the Dunlosky stuff on, on strengthening the, the toolbox. And we'd said about highlighting not being particularly effective. And actually, during one of the revision lessons, um, I had a box of highlighters at the desk. And the look of shock on on my year 11's face <laughs> at the introduction. You, what, what's this for? What do we, we don't use highlighters? They're not effective. I just thought, wow, this is, you know, they're quoting them back at me, you know. So it, it was for something entirely different. So, the, the, yeah, the, I think that sort of more qualitative measures, if you like, in terms of students seeming to understand this better and staff as well. And the second part is we've got uh, Jonathan Haslam from the IEE is going to be coming on um, quite soon to talk about some promising projects. Obviously, we're going to talk about this one because it's still ongoing, but uh, there's lots of stuff that, uh, that the IEE are doing, which are really, really interesting. And then I'm sure we'll ask Jonathan about that when he comes on. Yeah, that's going to be a fascinating conversation. Look forward to that one. 
Well, it will. Okay, Mark. So just if we can move on a little bit wider now. So I just wanted to talk about your extremely successful book. So it's making every geography lesson count. And and I said to you just before we started, you know, we've we've looked at this, and I'm not a geography teacher. I'm, I'm a science teacher, but we we think this is obviously really really useful for geography teachers. But also, you know, it's useful for other teachers to to read this, you know, across because a lot of the topics that you talk about do tie in nicely. So, do you want to give us a little bit of a pricey about what is, you know, the, the book? How makes how is it particularly distinctly geography, and how is it applicable a little bit wider? Okay, so making every geography lesson count is part of a series of books. Um, so it started with making every lesson count, which is a you know, phenomenally successful book written by Sean Allison and Andy Farby back in 2015. And it was the book that really got me excited about teaching again. You know, I've been teaching since 2004, and I've lost the love of the subject a little bit. I lost, you know, just teaching generally. I was getting a little bit jaded with it. And reading that book just opened my eyes to the kind of wider possibilities in education, that there was more going on than, than I realised. Um, and making every geography lesson count is the geography-specific version. In some ways, it acts like an extended appendix to that book. So I think that's probably why there's so much in making every geography lesson counts applicable to other subjects, because the book at the, the heart of the series is so applicable. You know, you know, a lot of the ideas from making every geography lesson count are drawn from uh, making every lesson count and then uh, applied to a geography context. Plus, you know, my copy was written three years on from the original and there are things in the education landscape that's changed and moved on I mean really I think we're all just waiting for a making every lesson count volume two you know when Sean and Andy I don't know what their plans are but if they could finally get around to writing a writing a second one I think that would be pretty phenomenal it definitely would it definitely would um so in terms of the sections so you've got sections on explanation modeling uh, remind me so you've got, you've got feedback haven't you as well practice uh, yeah and so you... it, it... it's gone it's challenge, explanation, modelling, practice, feedback and questioning. And the kind of practice sits at the heart of the book. So really we're looking at how challenge you know, can be used to ensure that the practice is suitably challenging. How can we explain things well enough so that their practice is efficient? You know, how can we model things to allow that practice? And then how do we give feedback and questioning on that practice? I like the idea of practice being the beating heart of the lesson. You know, that's what we need students to do is to practice the things that we've shown them, practice the things that we've modelled so that they apply things themselves. Mm, brilliant. And, and the reason that we read it is because one of our research leads um, is a geography teacher. And what she liked about it, I remember saying that, you know, that there's no gimmicks in it. Um, but it's got, it's got lots and lots of case studies of things that are very practical that geography teachers could take and, and could use. And I know it's been instrumental in a lot of what she's been doing in her classroom and the department as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the case stuff, I was very lucky to have some excellent people uh, joining in uh, to add their own case studies to the book. So people like uh, Jen Monk and Michael Childs and Paul Logie, and they're just very, very generous, you know, giving up their time and giving up their ideas. Um, and so they're kind of taking their own reflections on how they make every geography lesson count and then adding it into the book as well. Um, and then kind of my own examples throughout of what I do in the classroom. It was quite a personal book in many ways, trying to kind of open the lid on what goes on in a typical, or hope, typical geography classroom um, so everyone else can, can peer in. Right, well, what a, what a fantastic segue when we talk about peering into mm. your next book, um, oh, which yeah. we're very excited about, um, which has, <laughs> has the title of How Would You Teach If Nobody Is Watching? Um, yes. 
you know, tell us a little bit more about that because that's an intriguing title, Mark. That really is. Yeah, so teach like nobody's watching. It it just became quite early on in my teaching career, just my own personal mantra, really. Um, obviously, you know, take from the kind of you know, dance like nobody's watching. You know, just just get on and teach. That if somebody says they want to come in and observe your lesson, if it's a formal observation of officers are coming in, that it shouldn't matter as long as what you're doing is making an impact. As long as those kids are coming out with the best geography education I can give them then I don't need all the bells, the whistles. Um, and so over the years, I've just tried to strip teaching back. And so the idea that's kind of central to teach like nobody's watching is three things that I really believe to be true. And the first is that teaching is fundamentally simple. Now, if you watch anybody teach anything, whether it's how to drive a car, how to bake a cake, um, the working to the atmospheric circulation model, they do it the same way. It starts with a recap and they say, do you remember when? And they refer back to something that they've already taught and then they do some input and they show them how to do something or teach them about something new and then they get them to apply and practice it for themselves and they give them some feedback on how it's done. And that's it. That's all the teaching is. It's just recap, input, application, feedback. And if we remember that, that how simple it is, then we can look at those simple aspects and we can kind of enjoy some of their complexities because there are lots of different ways to do recap, lots of different ways to do impact and explanation. And so we can just work on those simple aspects until we refine them and do them really, really well. And then we can ignore all of those complications. That's the third thing that I think is true is that we've overcomplicated teaching and we've allowed outside observers, outside agencies to dominate what happens in our classroom. And we end up with ridiculous conversations around staff rooms and a leadership team tables and saying things like, you know, okay, let's look at what we do about homework. Let's come up with a really good idea for how we could make homework successful. And people come up with this superb idea with, you know, this is going to simplify, it's going to make it work, it's going to be effective, it's going to be efficient. And then someone says, oh, yeah, but will parents like it? And goes, oh, yeah. And then it goes no further. Or what would Ofsted think? Or what would our governors say? Or And so I, I just think we just strip out some of those complications and just focus on what works and making things effective and making things efficient because education can't go on like it is now we're losing too many teachers we need to do something to halt this exodus from the classroom i think the only thing we can do is to make teaching a doable job again mm. Mm. so a bit of a rant i, I have quite a few rants i'm afraid no, 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 <laughs> no. i don't realize like to like start speaking at a conference or, or talking to someone and i realize that yeah you can find yourself going off on one but well, I was just sitting here nodding, nodding along and agreeing with everything that you were saying. So, well, that's good. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, you came into teaching in about 2004. So, I mean, I was a yeah. little bit earlier than that. So I've, I've seen pretty much everything. And I'm on to sort of the, the, the second iteration of pretty much everything that's been through once. And I'm kind of yeah. hoping that this time we stick we stick with the kind of things that we're doing now, which, you know, you know, I, I do what, I mean, there's a lot of people who have done a lot of this kind of stuff, have gone back about their early career and said how they would have done it differently. And I'm not saying that I would do that, but what we're doing now seems to have a basis in, you know, much, much more in the classroom and it seems to be much more applicable and it seems to be, you know, working much better for the pupils. So hopefully this is the kind of the route that we continue to go down. And obviously your book, We'll be talking about a lot of things that will appeal to teachers at, at different stages of the career, because you know I've yeah. I've changed in terms of how I've done things in the last few years, uh, and a lot of the mm. stuff that you've said there in terms of stripping things away, keeping things a lot simpler, 
and the bells and whistles. I just remember I was doing some reports actually last night for NQTs and looking at that that's that kind of phrase that's still in there, you know, about, about engagement, engagement in teacher standards. Which you know, it, there's nothing wrong with engagement as such, but it was the way that it was applied to mean that you were the, you were the, always the one as a teacher that was providing the engagement. Yes. Yeah. You can never read the subject. No. Oh no. No. It'd have to yeah, be some kind of you know quiz or or some kind of trick or some kind of. Yeah. In my case, we talked about it. I'm going off on a rant now. We talked about it on our course on on, on Friday, and we we're looking at um, you know it was actually metacognition, but I ended up talking about the time I brought my dog in to the class, mm, and, wow. and and someone said, "Why did you bring your dog into class?" And I just said, "I don't know." I really genuinely don't know. It must have been something around engagement, but I can't quite yeah. for the life of me remember why on earth, and or, or indeed what I did with the dog for the rest of the day, but that's a different story. We'll probably... I've got this theory that we have these kind of, you know, come across this idea of cargo cults, so these um, islanders in the South Pacific who um, were building runways out of kind of bamboo and these, these kind of planes because they remembered the European and Americans arriving with all this cargo, and they wanted this cargo back. And so they were creating the kind of structures that attracted the cargo without really understanding why they were doing it and the, the ideas behind it. And I think that's, that's what we did in education. Because I look back at some of the things like it's a, you know, carousel tasks. Mm. You know, having my tables set out in little groups and pupils going around the room from table to table, doing a different activity on each one, and then kind of feeding back at the end what they'd learned back into another group. I think that, that has to be the least effective way of teaching anything. But why did I do it? You know, there must have been at some point an idea behind it that's been lost in the midst of time that explained why this was a good idea. And yet all we're left with is the structure of let's do a carousel task. It's kind of engaging. But surely there was something more at, at one point. Well, absolutely. I have no idea what it is. Absolutely. And this kind of brings us back around to where we started in, in terms of the reason for the podcast was to try and increase sort of research literacy within teachers. And, you know, in, in a short sort of burst in a podcast, talking to people who are actually in classrooms, um, di- discussing what kind of things they can do in theirs, which brings me nicely to, obviously, you're doing quite a lot of work for TES. You're a regular columnist now, aren't you, for TES? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, just my personal view here, you know, the, the way that TES has moved has made it extremely readable. I'm speaking to people all the time that are now coming back to it, that maybe have, yeah. you know, have, have kind of gone away for the last few years, but have really come back to it and really like the, the way that things are going there. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your article that you wrote this week. So it's got the title, it was Interpreting Theory, Missteps, Misconceptions and Missed Opportunities. And it was a, it's a curriculum special, isn't it, this, this week? Yeah. Yeah, so... The kind of three part curriculum special that I think has been fantastic. So, you know, part one, they had various people, mainly from kind of universities and teacher training colleges, speaking about their the theories of curriculum and, you know, what schools should be doing. And the second part was looking at how we took that and put it into practice in the classroom. I think my piece really was just noting a slight, a note of caution, really, that in the past, you know, we have been stung by things when we rush too quickly to embrace something or to embed it. So the kind of example that I give in the article is interleaving. And I remember, you know, over the last five years, I've been to a few different sessions run by different kind of consultants and heard people speak. And they talk about this idea of an interleaved curriculum where they do different topics on different days. So in geography, they do tectonics on Monday, urbanization on Wednesday, rivers on Thursday, and then come back to tectonics on Monday and call that interleaving. Whereas in the research literature, we, you know, we still support an idea of interleaving, 
kind of the idea of variation theory and things. So there's a lot of evidence why we should do interleaving, but it doesn't look like the way some people have taken it and thrown it into their classroom practice and insisted that other people do the same. And I think uh, one of the big problems that we've got when it comes to trying to do more around uh, curriculum uh, and a reason why we're likely to get things wrong, sadly, is that we can't focus enough on the subject. Most CPD has to be generic, and there's a lot of schools that really want to cling on to central control and making sure that everybody is doing the same thing. They want you know, teachers and even they sat in the hall where they can keep an eye on them. They're not willing to just release them to go and work on something else. They want to get a speaker in from outside to address the whole staff. But every subject needs to have a curriculum that reflects their subject discipline. We can't have generic CPD in that way. We need to invest in our subject communities and making sure that people are getting the support they need from their subject communities, not some generic consultant who's going to come in and give them some half-understood waffle about the thing they read last week on curriculum design. We're going to end up back with cargo cults and back with... Um, very confused approaches to teaching and learning. Mm. I mean, again, I talked to you before the podcast. I have witnessed personally some um, Damascene conversions of people towards a particular way of doing things now that they are um, on the Ofsted framework. Which is appallingly kind of cynical thing for me to say, but you know, you know, we, we you know, just speaking personally, as I, as I probably should do on this podcast. It, the Ofsted framework and the research commentary was something that I'd read quite extensively before it came out. I'd even gone to the sources on a few of the different pieces that, that Daniel Merzer put out there. I'd listened to Daniel speak numerous times. And, and even now, Mark, I've only got a very surface understanding of what kind of things we're talking about, but at least I've got an awareness. And also, you know, the, the implementation guide, so the EEF's implementation guide, I've gone to look at that and I've listened to Jonathan talk about that quite a lot from the EEF. And, and only then would I start to think about, right, what do these things mean and how can I implement them into either my own practice or sort of wider through through curriculum, that kind of thing. What we've got a danger of, and it's what you described there as that cargo culture is, right, I've read a little bit of this. These are the buzzwords that I need to throw in to wow any particular audience that I'm speaking to. And these are the things that need to go through your curriculum. And, and you're right, if we aren't careful, then we are going to end up with the same kind of effect that possibly we had sort of 15 years ago where we're doing things and we're not quite sure why. And also, you know, to, to continue my rant, apologies, but w without effective implementation of some of these things, you're going to lose teachers' confidence in what are very, very credible, you know, evidence and research-based yeah. ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's, I'm already seeing them kind of, you know, Facebook groups more so than Twitter. Um, but lots and lots of subject groups this half term, heads of department being told they've got to spend this half term rewriting their curriculum for Ofsted. You know, they've got to write curriculum intent statements for Ofsted. It's just a terrible, terrible idea. You know, we, we should have an idea of our curriculum intent. I think it's really important that we know what we're teaching and why, that we have some kind of bigger picture that we're working towards and, uh, and you know, that, that's what our lessons are aimed to achieve vitally important, but simply doing it for Ofsted, doing it for an outside observer, is going to corrupt our curriculum completely. We're going to have people, yet again, as you say, doing things just for Ofsted, not because they work. And and all the hard work that Ofsted are doing, sadly, will then be for nothing. You know, I like the new framework, I like the way 
Ofsted are moving, but there are inevitably going to be unintended consequences that we really have to watch for. Mm. Listen, Mark, I could speak to you all afternoon, but like I said, the, the purpose of the podcast was to try and keep it short. And, and almost, you know, when I, when, I, when I decided on the idea, it was almost something that you could listen to on the commute uh, there or back or, on a, on a, or as you do, uh, as a run through, yeah. the, run through the hills um, yeah. or, or, or a walk with the dog or that kind of thing. So I'm just going to wrap it up with just, just one more thing. Could you just tell listeners a little bit more about where they can see you speak next, and just to talk about a little bit about your blog, uh, which is it's called Teaching Teaching It Real. Is that what it's called? Yes, that's right. Um, so in terms of where they can see me speak, probably Research Ed conferences. I'll be at Research Ed London to so the national conference in September. Um, I'm also doing a Making Every Geography Lesson Count workshop uh, for the Empower Teaching School Alliance. We geography teachers, and there's a few tickets left. Um, so over in outskirts of London, kind of Dartford way. Um, but research ed conference this year, I'll be at London, I'll be at Kent, I'll be at Surrey coming up in the autumn and having a look at retrieval practice, but from that curriculum perspective. Um, and my blog really, Teaching It Real, just reflects the things that I write about and talk about all the time. It's trying to cut away some of the nonsense and just get teaching back to something that is simple and doable and cutting away those complications. Absolutely. Right. Thank you again, Mark. Thank you for giving up your time in half term. And thank you for tearing yourself away from either your writing or your garden or, or, or even running in the hills. Um, yeah, so, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks very much for your time. And hopefully I'll see you soon at one of the research ed conferences. Lovely. I'll see you then. Thank you. Really enjoyed speaking to Mark. Great insights into his role and his thoughts on education. Thank you, Mark. In the next few episodes, I'll be speaking to Ruth Walker on powerful knowledge, physics and cognitive science, Oliver Caviglioli on his new book, Dual Coding for Teachers, and Jonathan Haslam on promising research projects. Into the shameless plug section, and listeners will know on the 15th of June, I'll be speaking at Research Ed Rugby. Escaping the Hamster Wheel is the title of the talk, where I'll be talking about the use of evidence and research to change culture in schools and reflecting on our experiences in Blackpool. I'm also incredibly honoured to have been asked by Jude Hunton to interview Professor Michael Young for a special on-tour podcast. So I'll be asking him about powerful knowledge and curriculum and on the 28th of June, I'll be in London talking about metacognition in a knowledge-rich curriculum for Keynote. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. And Anchor FM have a new feature where you can send in questions. So I've included a link on the podcast introduction. So help us to get interactive by sending in your questions. Once again, thank you for listening and see you next time on Nailers Natter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers.